0: And half oh God! Daddy, stay on your bike, dude. And you know uh, your legs are, are burning, and you don't want to turn around anymore. And you know if somebody now attacks, you're going to be like blown out of the water. But you just go, no, I just keep going, just keep going. Time on the inside, it's the solo on the barriers. Oh, what about that? Now then, everybody, I am Tom Ramsey, and welcome to the Edge Coaching Podcast. This podcast will provide a clear insight into the world of athletic performance and help provide a clear, relatable understanding into subject areas revolving training, nutrition, stress, psychology, and much, much more. Without further ado, let's begin. Hello everybody and welcome to the Edge Coaching Podcast, episode number 40. 40 episodes in now, we're going strong um, and I've managed to get another one out um, about a week after I did my previous one. So we're we're, we're back on track for um, kind of how the frequency of, of, of doing these podcasts. Um, if you're new to the podcast, thank you very much for joining. And today we are going to be talking about performance enhancing supplements. Now, one thing that I want to make very clear right from the start is that any of you listening to this podcast do not need supplements. They are not a requirement and any of the supplements that I mentioned today may not actually help your performance or your health whatsoever. If you have a diet which is rich in lots of variety of uh, nutrients, lots of variety of different food groups from different textures um, lots of different vegetables um, which gives you a variety of different micronutrients and making sure that your, your diet is full of all the relevant macronutrient groups as well. So making sure that you've got good um, protein sources through meats and fishes and beans and pulses, making sure you've got plenty of carbohydrate to fuel your performance, and also making sure that you've got a good foundation of healthy fats through different sources as well, then typically you are 99% sorted in terms of your diet. But what you'll kind of understand through this podcast, hopefully, is that increasing certain doses of certain things that you can already get through certain food groups might help your performance, whether that be recovery-based, whether that be um, acute performance-wise, whether that be uh, stimulating different energy systems in your training and your racing. Um, But yeah, the the main key point that I want to say straight from the off before I get into this is that None of these supplements are must-haves. And I don't want you to listen this, to this podcast and then frantically be scouring the internet to try and buy all of these um, supplements in, in high quantities without giving it a critical refle- reflection and thinking, does my diet need these supplements? Will these supplements actually benefit me? Because for some of you, not you know, some of these supplements won't benefit you at all. Um, If you've already got plentiful amount of them in your in your diet, now there's some of these supplements that I'm going to mention, which a standalone normal diet in itself will not give you the amount required, and I'll mention some of those um, later, and they will, I'm 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 kind of um, certainly selling the benefits of those more than others, but yeah, one of the main key points is that you do not need any of these supplements. They just may give you that extra few percent to improve your health, improve your performance, improve your recovery. All the supplements in the world will not um, sort out a bad diet. So you must prioritize the quality of your diet and your nutrition before you even approach the consideration of different supplements. And as much as certain supplements that I'm going to discuss today, might give you one two three four five percent improvement in performance a bad diet might be uh, attributing you know a twenty percent loss in your performance and your health if it's if it's bad so you know if make sure your diet's right first before you even consider any of these supplements right let's get into it Margins of victory are becoming ever smaller within athletic competition. And the difference between first and second place is, is often kind of unrecognizable to the human eye in cycling. You know, we have to use um, video evidence and so on. So, any small advantage to improve athletic performance could have quite a, a large impact on the subsequent results. And over the past two decades, the demand for both natural and organic performance enhancing supplements has seen a dramatic increase. Um, And supplementing is one method that athletes use to gain an extra advantage over their competitors. Now, performance enhancing supplements are designed to enable the body to work more efficiently through a number of different pathways. The majority of these nutrients are actually present in. um, Sorry, the the majority of these nutrients which are present in dietary supplements are actually kind of naturally occurring substrates um, in a variety of different foods. Um, So, for example, one of them, uh, which I'm going to be talking about today, which is creatine, that is um, present in lots of different meat. but the majority, um, but 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 often, kind of increasing these supplementation doses beyond what is feasibly attainable in whole foods, will have subsequent improvements in performance. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to kind of categorize these supplements into uh, two kind of major categories today. Uh, today, um, if we just. Uh, fairly clearly, you can talk about supplements in terms of long-term reward or short-term reward. Um, Now, examples of short-term reward supplements would be something like uh, caffeine, for example. Now, if you take a caffeine tablet, um, roughly 15-20 minutes after you take that tablet, uh, you will start to notice The effects of caffeine Um, and then about an hour after you take that um, it'll have peaked in your blood you'll be mentally and physically more stimulated and thus um, there's quite a heavy relationship between that and increasing your performance in different events we're not going to be talking about those type of supplements today we're not going to be talking about like the the pre-race supplements the ones that you take and then you know um pre-race and then and dramatically your race performance will be improved. Um today we're going to be talking about the kind of this the supplements which are going for kind of longer term reward. So the ones that realistically you should be taking every day or you know regularly throughout the week um in order to search for long term reward. Um and yeah, so the ones that you can kind of Think about intertwining into your diet, and and the reason that we take these supplements is, for example, um, some of them will be because human population are typically fair, um, lacking this in their diet anyway, or human population would benefit out of doing, uh, you know, taking this far beyond what's feasibly attainable in whole foods to get a good performance benefit later on. Um, so I'm going to go through, uh, what I see as my top five supplements, um, in this category. Now, one thing I will say is that there is many, many, many more supplements out there. Um, there is probably hundreds of different supplements. Um, and all of these supplements are very easy to find. You know, if you go on to, um, a website, a very well-known website uh, called My Protein, for example. Uh, and you type, you go onto the subheading of supplements. You will find many, many supplements. Now, some of these are well backed by research to have performance enhancing effects, or health enhancing effects, or to to, to kind of help you from a health standpoint. And some of these have very, very lacking evidence. And the reason that I've chosen these five is because I think that based on evidence and based on subjective feedback from not only myself, but other athletes, these are the ones which would give you what I like to say your biggest bang for your buck. So in terms of the cost versus the reward, the biggest um, improvements in your health, your body composition, your lifestyle, and your performance. Anyway, without further ado, let's get into it. Number one, um, and and also what well, I'll sorry just just before I go into it, what I'll also say is that these supplements won't necessarily be right for everyone. So some people will have a some people, for example, might already have an abundance of this in their diet because they take uh, they they eat a certain way. And if that is the case, then you probably won't need this. But for most athletes, they don't eat this certain way, and thus supplementing this will dramatically improve their performance. Um, supplement number one that I'd recommend is whey protein or, or protein supplementation in general, but the, the most common one being whey protein. Um, and like I say, the most kind of, the, the cheapest for, for the reward that you get out of it um now why is protein so important for endurance athletes or athletes in general well protein has numerous functions in our body um, and it is an important nutrient that supports our health including um including kind of a stable immune system and, and physical performance as well um adequate protein intake is therefore you know, a really important piece of the puzzle for optimal training adaptations and performance in sport. And for cyclists, especially protein is a key factor, um, especially during, you know, recovering from hard efforts. Um, you know, we all, we always hear this kind of protein is the building blocks of our cells and our muscles. And it, you know, it's very right. So, Protein intake prevents muscles from a kind of a, a catabolic state and promotes muscle repair repair and muscle building. And over time, this can support uh, muscle strength and optimal body composition. Now, you know, the endurance athletes probably screaming at this podcast thinking, I don't need to build muscle. Why do I need protein? I don't need to build muscle. Well, Endurance athletes need, if anything, more protein than um, inactive people. Well, in- endurance athletes do need more protein than inactive people. And there's an argument to suggest that endurance athletes need a higher proportion of protein than those individuals who are actually trying to put on muscle. Because endurance performance is actually a really, really uh, catabolic exercise. So it really, really breaks down muscle tissue. And... Um, and, and, and endurance training puts huge stress on muscle and tendon tissue. And in order to repair this and maintain the kind of um, integrity and function of, of the kind of protein structures, an adequate intake of dietary protein is required. Um, and, th- and this is because, you know, proteins from food ultimately provide the essential amino acid kind of building blocks, which is, is needed for this purpose. Now, taking protein from um, uh, food is obviously an, a whole foods like meat and fish and things like that is um, where you should be getting the bulk of your protein from. However, of all my athletes and all the people that I've um, had interviews with and, and all the people that I know, the majority of athletes struggle to get to the kind of adequate amount of grams of protein per day that would be required now you're asking how many grams of protein should you be having as a cyclist or an endurance athlete well as with most dietary principles protein requirements do vary from athlete to athlete and there is no one size fits all recommendation by any means many there's many many different factors um such as you know your type of diet your training volume, um, your athletic goal, um, and, and these all determine the, the individual protein requirement, which can also, you know, change depending on the the, the kind of tr- training periodization as well, for example. Um, um, but yeah, most leading scientists and coaches and, in, you know, including myself, this is, um, generally recommend a daily protein intake for endurance athletes of around 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilo of body weight. Um, so, if you interpret that over um, you know, the most of you who might be listening, for example, so let's say you are an individual, if I take a rough guess. I would say that the average listener to this podcast will be about 75 kilos, 80 kilos. So let's say you are 80 kilos, um, which coincidentally is about where I am as well. If you are 80 kilos and um, we go times by 1.6, which is the minimum requirement, that's 128 grams of protein per day now if you were to have for example three square meals a day if we divide that by three that would be 42.6 grams of protein per meal which is a friggin' big portion of protein (laughs) now if you consider that one big chicken breast is roughly 25 grams of protein you can, still start, you can soon start to see why that would be quite difficult because you'd have to have three square meals a day with about two chicken breasts per meal. Um, six chicken breasts in total. Now, obviously, chicken breasts being one example, but you could vary that with some fish, you could vary that with some steak and so on. But the caveat to this is that after a certain uh, upper limit of protein, which varies for everyone, roughly, Uh, you can't digest and assimilate a certain uh, amount of protein um, in one sitting Um, so before you kind of excrete the rest Um, and again that varies for everyone but it usually circles around 30 to 40 grams so that being said um, you can't generally you know, just say, okay, well, I ain't going to have any protein in my breakfast, and then I'm going to have 150 grams for lunch, um, because you wouldn't reap the rewards of doing so. So you kind of want to break that um, 100, whatever it was, 130 grams of protein down into smaller chunks. So if we do 130 grams divided by five meals in a day, that comes to 26 grams of protein per serving so for example you might have scrambled eggs on toast for breakfast then mid-morning this is where the protein shakes come in so you'd have a whey protein shake with 25 grams of protein mid-morning so that's two of the five meals done then you would have a lunch with again 25 30 grams of protein like a can of fish for example mid-afternoon again you might think oh To bump up my protein requirements, I might have another protein shake. Um, You might vary it with a vegan blend of protein shake, which is like um, typically um, some pea and rice and hemp protein mixture. And then on your evening meal, you will then have, again, your your chicken or your... um, beans and your pulses or your steak or whatever it might be. And you'll you'll have got that requirement. But you can soon start to see why not having any form of protein supplementation would start to make this very difficult. So that's why I do recommend um protein supplementation for athletes. Supplement number two is creatine. Now despite little evidence to support their use untold millions take multivitamins every single day now if we contrast that with creatine lay people would categorize it as like a a steroid or or something that is only to be used by guys um in in the the kind of gym you know who are lifting lifting heavy weights and so on What we now know is that there is plenty of, you know, good evidence to support creatine supplementation for essentially everyone. But let me put this into kind of stronger terms. Not only should creatine be in a lifter's protein drink, but it should also be added to your dad's Budweiser, your mum's soya milk, and your gran's caramel tea. Now, if you've listened to my first ever podcast, my introduction podcast, you'll have already heard that little spiel because <laughs> uh, because I, 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 that's the way in which I, I kind of um, introduced creatine in that podcast when someone asked me about it. But um, yeah, there's multiple, multiple evidence to support the benefits of creatine, and um, now I'm going to go uh, go into a couple of little bits um, here to uh, support in evidence. Now there's a lot of um, really relevant literature on creatine supplementation for aging athletes, and one term we'll use here is sarco- sarcoplenia. Now sarcoplenia, sarcopenia, sorry, is the loss, is essentially the loss of muscle tissue um, as the kind of, uh, natural aging process. Um, and, and uh, really, unfortunately for, for people who are aging, muscles do wither, um, and, and their ability to do simple tasks kind of vanishes as, as athletes or, or general population gets, gets older. Um, and now to combat that, we can do weightlifting. So it's a very obvious answer. To to retain muscle, we need to use it. So that's why you should get your uh, aging grandfather or your dad to go into the gym and, and lift some weights. Um, but as everyone who's ever had an aging relative, um, convincing them to go into the gym and lift weights after a lifetime of inactivity Is going to be incredibly difficult. (laughs) Um, So there's a few studies which have found that creatine supplementation alone, even without resistance training, is actually enough to not only um, uh, prevent uh, the the kind of um, the wasting of muscle or kind of prevent sarcopenia to to some degree. But there's even some studies which, which suggest that it can reverse sarcopenia. Now, obviously, this creatine-induced uh, reversal of muscle wasting worked a lot better when used in conjunction with res- resistant training. But the fact that it worked to any degree by itself is, in my mind, pretty remarkable. Um, There's been plenty of studies with regards to creatine and longevity. Um, Essentially, the way in which it helps our mitochondria produce energy. Um, There's also been many studies supporting creatine and heart function. Um, And um, generally, I mean, for anyone who's ever read um, an article on, on creatine... Um, it it generally leads to an increased population of ATP, um, which is kind of what I describe as the body's kind of energy currency. Um, And among the types of cells that rely on adequate levels of ATP are heart cells. But these levels are invariably low in people with um, heart failure. Um, So this is kind of uh typified by low energy levels and and tiring very quickly um but yeah research um gives uh sorry re- researchers who kind of give creatine to um patients with these heart issues they typically become stronger um their energy increases and and yeah they they get they get better in in these studies. Now again, remarkable in my in my eyes, because creatine as you'll know, creatine supplementation is very, very, very simply one small five gram scoop of a white powder. <laughs> it looks um it looks a bit odd to the untrained eye. You know, the amount of times that I joke with my family that I'm sniffing cocaine or something, uh, because it looks very similar, um, when you get it out the tub, um, but yeah, you mix it with some water and you swig it, um, and, uh, and yeah, it doesn't have a taste particularly, and it doesn't have any side effects for me, it doesn't have any side effects to 99.9% of the population, but it can have these dramatic, uh, benefits, um, now, creatine monohydrate. Other benefits. Things. It also includes things like uh, lowering blood sugar levels, um, and and can even help reduce fat accumulation in the liver for people with kind of um, fatty liver disease and and so on. Um, so yeah, it from a health perspective many 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 uh, studies to support purely based on health now where does this come into athletic where does creatine fit into athletic performance well it's probably best explained by um, first explaining what creatine is and what it physiologically what it's doing in our bodies Um, now to give you a a little bit of chemistry Our our muscles naturally contain creatine as part of um, the molecule the molecule creatine phosphate um, and and this is kind of also called phosphocreatine. Now creatine phosphate is quick and easy supply of phosphate molecules which allow energy to be produced in our muscles very quickly. So. If you're doing a sprint, for example, that is the first initial energy system which is activating. Um, now, all energy in our body is produced when adenosine diphosphate, um, which is essentially adenosine plus two phosphate molecules, gains another phosphate molecule to become adenosine adenosine triphosphate. So the availability of these... Um, Free phosphate, um, in this case, the creatine phosphate, is important to the process. If you're getting lost about the, the science and the the chemistry, just just bear with me. Um, the supply of these creatine phosphate though is limited, and while it allows very quick energy production, the supply very does very quickly does run low. So. Creatine supplements essentially aim to increase the amount of kind of circulating creatine phosphate, which is stored in the muscles by about around 20%. So 20% increase in these circulating creatine phosphate molecules by supplementing creatine. Now this extra store allows an athlete to produce maximum intensity efforts over roughly 5 to 15 second efforts, something like that, for essentially a little bit longer and more frequently, with shorter recovery periods in between. Now if we take that into a performance element, um, I'm sure I'll have, you know, ultra-distance athletes shouting at the stream, saying, well I do 10 hour races at zone 3, why would I benefit from that? Well, There'll be limited benefit for those individuals, but there will be benefits to you guys in your training, because I would argue that even if you are doing five hour races at zone three, you know, um, then you will still be doing some short, sharp efforts in your training and thus you'll get more benefit out of those sessions in your training and thus you'll be able to improve your performance for your race results and as the health benefits from it as well, um, Now, for everyone else, similar to me, for example, if you're a crit racer or you're a cyclocross racer or a mountain bike racer where you're doing multiple efforts at and above FTP, multiple sprints, multiple efforts around VO2 max on, off, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, those type of efforts, there is a benefit for taking it. Um, And, yeah, so it's particularly handy in, in, in disciplines where it's, you know, that start and stop on off nature. Um, as a side note, creatine supplements also appear to benefit muscle strength, making them a popular choice for athletes doing weight training. So subjectively, I find that I notice the difference when I'm on creatine when I'm not. Um, whether that is psychosomatic there's an argument to suggest so. Um, but I mean, I think I think I noticed the difference. And if I not- think I noticed the difference for what it costs me, is, which is essentially pennies, creatine is one of the, the cheapest supplements you can get, I would say um, there's no reason why you shouldn't be taking it. Now, f- uh, subjectively going back a step, for me in the gym, if I'm doing a set of squats and I'm on my eighth rep, and it feels a 9.5 out of 10 for effort, normally if I'm not on creatine, I would know that I wouldn't be able to get another rep out, because I'll probably fail, whereas if I'm on creatine, I can potentially get another rep out, and st- it still feel 9.5 out of 10, and then still feel like I can get another rep out it just feels like I can get another rep for the same perceived effort that's what it feels like it's it's pretty mad and obviously you times one gym session by three gym sessions a week over months an extra every single set I'm doing an extra rep it's a lot of volume and it's a lot of performance increases um but um yeah and the going away from the strength and the sprinting there's been a you know lots of studies benefit, uh, showing benefits to endurance performance um less so than strength on sprint than on sprint performance admittedly um but um you know you've got to ask yourself for your um discipline is it a constant slow effort moderate effort or is it up and down in intensity and if it's if there's any variance in intensity typically you would see quite a profound benefit from it um i mean if i'm honest even if i wasn't doing you know even if all i did in my training was long slow cycling and all i did in my racing was long slow races so there's not much benefit to be said for it i think i would still take it anyway for the health benefits um aside from that um the only negative which i could take at all from creatine supplementation is that you do get a small associated weight gain with it now that depends on how heavy you are but typically anywhere between half a kilo and one and a half kilos weight gain um And that's essentially because you tend to retain a little bit of extra water within the muscle. That's the only reason. So if your sport is very critical on weight, so for example, if it's an endurance sport and your race finishes at the top of an Alpine climb, for example, I'd probably not take it. However... um, Again, even road racers who are thinking, oh, I best not take it then. If you're road racing in the UK, yeah, there's a few climbs, but very, very infrequently do you finish at the top of a long climb. And I would say personally that the pros outweigh the cons of taking creatine. Um, To give you a rough, I mean, if you Google creatine, um, if you're thinking of taking it, if you Google creatine, don't be pulled in by the fancy expense, expensive grams and, uh, sorry, ex- fancy expensive brands or the different types of creatine. Just get creatine monohydrate and you don't really need to do the, um, uh, the the initial stages of taking a high dose to try and fill your muscles with it for the first month or so like it might suggest on the back of the packet. Just from the off start taking five grams a day um three to five grams a day every single day um and uh and yeah just go from there um obviously if you have any negative effects i know i've had some clients suggest that they um get more headaches with it for example um but very very rare um and uh and yeah so so i'd definitely recommend creatine Um, number three on my supplement list is electrolytes, a fairly, fairly obvious one for me. Um, and I mean, I was almost not going to add it to the list because I thought, you know, most people would, um, would consider it and already take it. But I think a lot of people still don't take electrolytes and a lot of people suffer with things like cramps and, um, muscle spasms and and just underperformance because they don't take electrolytes but before we talk about electrolytes themselves we need to just talk a little bit about the importance of hydration um, and it really is hard to overstate the effects of dehydration on cycling performance your hydration level significantly influences blood plasma volume and um, as you become more dehydrated plasma volume essentially decreases which causes a decrease in cardiac output and a rise in your body temperature now what does this mean when you're racing or you're riding essentially you won't be able to produce the same power and these effects become more and more significant throughout a long endurance event now i've been in races before where i have been in a dehydrated state and it is purgatory it is horrible do not get to that state. Make sure you're hydrated. Now, the the simple solution to dehydration is essentially to just drink more water when you're riding. However, the problem is a bit more complicated. We not only lose water when we sweat, but we also lose, essentially, mostly sodium as well. And replacing the lost fluids with only water can lead to... Um, to to even worse problems Um, now this condition when we essentially just flush our systems with too much water without um, the dilution of of sodium um, is essentially the dilution of of blood Uh, sorry, going back a step (laughs) I got a bit tongue-tied there if we just flush our systems with water and no sodium and no electrolytes. This can actually eventually lead to very dangerous consequences. And people have actually died from this. I mean, I don't want to scare you. You're very, 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 very unlikely to get to that stage. But people have actually died from this in the past where um, they're doing, for example, an Ironman event and it's a very hot day and they have not they don't have a very high sodium diet, and they also do a full marathon just drinking water alone. Um, now, this condition is the essentially the dilution of blood sodium levels, um, and it occurs when you lose a lot of sodium and drink too much water, as I've said. Um, now, the good news is that with the right hydration strategy, you can ensure that you are drinking enough during your ride without these consequences. And put simply, a real, real simple way of doing this is just to make sure that you add some sodium um, to your drink while you're drinking it. It, it is definitely more complex than that. Um, but generally speaking, if it's a hot day, Making sure that when you're when you're drinking any drink, you just have some sodium or some electrolytes with it. Um, now, the best hydration drink for cycling, um I mean, there's multiple options when it comes to you know what to put in our bottles nowadays. Um, depending on what your nutrition nutritional needs are. Um, you know, this could be just as simple as some plain water if it's a short event um but um determining the best hydration drink for your event really comes down to a lot of personal preference but also weather conditions how long you're racing for um and also the intensity as well but these the, the hydration strategy will generally for, fall into four different categories the first one is just plain water um so if your ride is just a very very short ride plain water will be fine um you know if we're talking a 40 minute ride without any intensity then that should be absolutely fine no problem at all um just remember though that you may need some sodium um from another source so for example if it's a very hot day and you're only going out for 40 minutes you might want to consider having some added salt to your meals for example um more than more than you know normal population would have um, and it's a it's, a, it's something to, to bear in mind actually that um in recent years uh, we've generally been cutting down sodium in our meals as a as a as kind of growing health concern that a lot of people are having too much sodium but when you ask a a generally healthy individual um, how much sodium that they have in their meals they say oh i don't i don't add any salt to my meals and they are also the individuals who are, who are having healthy fresh food and no takeaways and so on so they won't won't have much sodium much salt in their meals at all and thus i would as as a coach and as a um, kind of i guess a health practitioner would, would advocate adding a little bit of salt to your meals now and again um, or again, having electrolyte tablets in your drink, just take a sip of my, my drink actually on while we're on. Um, so yeah, the first option is just peel up plain water. The second option is, um, you know, an, an electrolyte drink or electrolyte powder. Now you've probably seen, um, so I think, Science in Sport was the first person to do it, but maybe there's, there's lots of different brands now. Um, you can get like a little electrolyte tablets in a tube and you can just pop an electrolyte tablet in your normal water and that will essentially create um, uh, what we'd call, like an electrolyte drink where they don't actually have many calories in them or any calories in them but they provide you with a good balance of electrolytes, including sodium, to to balance your um, sodium to uh, water levels in the cells when we're cycling. Now, these are great for longer rides or especially hot rides. Essentially, the more you're sweating, the more you have to have that kind of drink. Um, So generally, as a coach, I would advocate them for any rides which are over an hour and a half-ish. Um, any rides which are over an hour and a half, we've had much intensity in them. Um, I mean, ev- again, everyone's different. Everyone has different sweat rates and so on. So there's no hard and fast rules for this. But generally, like, for example, if it's a race, and if it's any longer than an hour, an hour and a half, I would always kind of had one, even if it's just a fail safe. Um, because, you, I mean, if you're having one electrolyte tablet per 500 or 750 ml bottle, you're never going to kind of have too much too much of that um, because the concentration is about right. Um, now, as a little side note, um, those tubes of electrolyte tablets are quite an expensive way of doing it. If you go on to um, a supplement uh, company such as My Protein and you type in electrolyte, You can get bags of electrolyte supplements where you scoop them in as a powder for a lot cheaper and that's something to consider Um, but um another option is a carb electrolyte drink so you're having carbohydrates as well as the electrolytes and that's obviously where you need the calories and the carbohydrates as well as the electrolytes themselves but i'm not going to go into that because we're not talking about carbohydrates here Um, but yeah, electrolytes is my number three recommended supplement. Um, number four is beta aniline. Now, beta aniline is, is a supplement which, um, is probably less well known in the cycling, um, cycling discipline. Um, and I would argue less well known altogether, um, It's one which is often in pre-workout drinks. So, for example, um, those who regularly go to the gym, uh, you will have probably heard of pre-workout drinks, which are stimulating drinks, which include things like caffeine, um, things like taurine, um, things to really make you uh, more mentally and physically focused, ready for the session. Now, beta-aniline is one of the ingredients which is usually in these pre-workout drinks. And the reason for that is it does um, have some um, kind of mentally focusing uh, element to it. Um, It kind of makes you a little bit zoned in. And also it gives you um, some kind of short-term symptoms which some people attribute to Uh, having a good a good workout um and and those who have taken it before will know what i'm talking about which i'll come into a little in it very shortly um but yeah the the truth is that beta aniline's most kind of powerful benefits don't come from a a short-term supplementation they're they're more um prominent from a long-term use perspective um and to be honest, in terms of everything that I've talked about in creatine, beta aniline for the um, for the unknown individual could you could kind of summarise it as similar effects on uh, on your body to what creatine has because it is it's essentially um, intramuscular benefits and intercellular benefits. Now, beta aniline um, is is. Uh, essentially uh, it's a non-essential amino acid which means that your body can make it and doesn't solely rely on dietary intake to to increase beta-aniline but together with l histidine it's synthesized into carnosine in your skeletal muscles and carnosine plays a significant role in regulating muscle pH. So that's the critical point to to beta-aniline. Now the importance of carnosine comes down to the anaerobic system, uh, anaerobic energy system. So during moderate to high-intensity workouts, your body kind of anaerobically converts glucose into ATP and pyruvate. And then some of that pyruvate is used to make ATP. As a, as a result, converting pyruvate to ATP, lactate and hydrogen ions are produced. And again, I appreciate we're getting quite, uh, quite science based, quite heavy here, but bear with me. But the more you, essentially, the more you ride um, at and above lactate threshold, the more hydrogen ions you'll create, that further reduce muscle pH, causing that all too familiar muscle burning sensation. You know, in a race when you're kind of around threshold, you know, and your legs are just full of what people call lactic acid. Um, we're talking about that kind of um, that kind of sensation here. The critical point is that carnosine helps to buffer those hydrogen, hydrogen ions. And this is where it comes critical to a to a cyclist. Because cycle racing, we do spend a lot of time around threshold, around FTP. And the science suggests that be, supplementing beta-aniline could essentially help, um, in, in simple terms, flush that lactic acid out of the muscle cells. Um, we need lactic acid in the muscle cells to, to produce energy but the supplementing beta-aniline in really simplistic terms can help deal with that uh, lactic acid. Now, um, what does beta-aniline actually do? Well, it's not only used to synthesize carnosine, but it's also kind of um, rate-limiting. And that means that beta-aniline availability limits the amount of carnosine your body produces and if you have more beta aniline on board you can create more carnosine it's for this reason that many athletes tend to supplement with it um now with regards to cycling itself if beta aniline can indirectly help buffer muscle kind of um acidity it stands to reason that it would be you know beneficial for cycling under specific conditions. And research, admittedly, still is kind of ongoing for this. But mostly it's been shown to help in you know kind of shorter, more intense efforts. For example, in crit racing when you're on and off and around threshold. But several studies have also shown that supplementing with beta aniline can delay the onset of neuromuscular fatigue as well. Um, and I think if I remember rightly one study found that beta-aniline helped increase peak sprint power by I think it was like 11 to 15% or something like that at the end of a race so essentially uh, delaying neuromuscular fatigue so when when it comes down to the end sprint you've got more left in the tank to go full gas in simple terms Um, but yeah Research is is lacking in observing the effects of, you know, longer, longer efforts that are kind of um, 30 minutes or longer. There's limited research showing the benefits of that or, or any benefits of that at all. But the end goal of supplementation is to increase the muscular concentrations of carnosine and reduce the muscle pH. And that means that um, the reported benefits are mostly limited to the short working duration of the anaerobic energy system. Um, and, and you know, the results basically show that beta-aniline may improve the effects of high-intensity interval training and reduce neuromuscular fatigue for, for, for cyclists. Now, beta-aniline, again, comes in a tablet or a powdered form. And, um, the stuff that i've got in my cupboard is in a powdered form and i basically add it to some water or some juice and supplement it with it that way you can take it in small doses spread throughout the day or you can take it in one big dose um we need to remember that you, your body does naturally make beta aniline from organic compounds called um i can't even pronounce the word um so i'm not even going to try <laughs> um but you can take uh take beta-aniline by digesting foods rich in carnosine as well and this is one key point it doesn't just come from supplementation so um beta-aniline in is, is is prevalent in in kind of you know uh red meats and fish and poultry um and and this is one key point is that any people who are listening to this podcast which are vegan um or or follow a a strictly plant-based diet then you would have um much lower concentrations of muscle carnosine um and um so yeah you would benefit more in taking um beta aniline than those who aren't vegan it's the same with creatine as well which i forgot to mention this um when we talked about creatine creatine is the same those who are fully plant-based diets will have less um creatine in their diets and therefore you would benefit more out of taking creatine than someone who doesn't um, before taking any supplement though it's it's always a good idea to check um, to check how you respond to it. So just, just just have small doses of it and see how you respond to it. Um, Beta aniline is considered very safe, um, but it can cause what we call um parasthesia, which is essentially skin tingling. Now, anyone who's taken beta-aniline before will know exactly what I'm talking about. Anyone who's had a pre-workout drink with it in will know what I'm talking about. Um, I must admit, I quite like the sensation, but some people really don't like the sensation. Um, now, typically, this side effect is amplified in higher doses. So, smaller doses or slow-release tablets can reduce this, Um So bear that in mind. But this, this paresthesia is basically like a, yeah, a tingling sensation. I personally get it around the back of my ears and my neck. Some people know, known to get it in their forehead, for example. And at the the end of the day, it's, it's not a sign of anything that's majorly wrong going on. So don't panic if you do get it. It's just literally the sensation evolved with it. Um, but, uh, yeah, most studies recommend two to four grams daily. Um, and, uh, and yeah, just again, something to have every single day. Um, but yeah, you can divide that amount up into smaller doses, um, throughout the day if you need to keep the stink skin tingling down. Um, but yeah, it's a very well, well-researched supplement, um, and, but one thing that i will say is that the research is heavily backing it for repeated sprint ability and resisting neuromuscular fatigue efforts up to uh, sorry at the top end of threshold and over threshold but the the research sorry into kind of longer term endurance performance is less is less so but yeah it improves sprint performance um and uh and yeah can can have a a benefit on your on your cycling performance for sure especially if you're kind of you know more sprint based athlete or on and off based um efforts in in training and racing my last supplement which i would recommend um is a vitamin and that is vitamin d Vitamin D has been shown to play um, a very active role in bone health, immune function, protein synthesis, muscle function, um, inflammatory response, cellular growth, um, and even kind of the regulation of skeletal muscle as well. Um, and it's very easy to see why researchers have have started kind of investigating its influence on athletic performance and injury prevention, when it shows all these pronounced benefits to to general health as well. Vitamin D deficiency can lead um, to injury, which is which is very a very key key point, um, and it can decrease your sport performance. Vitamin D deficiency can lead um to to many different factors um and is we are becoming more aware of it in the uk um and worldwide population more people are being tested and and it's very um uh, evident that a lot of people are actually very um deficient in vitamin d uh, whether that's athletic population or not now a few studies um Uh, I mean, a few studies that I pulled up this morning were American studies, um, but I've got a study here which showed that vitamin D insufficiencies, uh, or essentially deficiencies, are um, estimated to affect over 1 billion people worldwide, with over 77% of American population To be considered vitamin d deficient now like i say that was an american study um based on american people but if we consider that vitamin d um can be uh, increased due to sun exposure and and i won't go into the science behind that because that would take me a long time and i don't fully understand it it's the truth as well (laughs) but um if we consider that and we make common sense that the americans have more sunlight exposure than we do or uh that there it's more sun in the in america than there is uh the sun is stronger in america than it is in the uk then it only takes it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to work out that it's very likely that uk uh population are if anything uh more uh vitamin d deficient than U you us population um, we do need to consider, though, that um, I would argue that we we have a better diet over here than they do in the U.S. Generally, generally, that is not all states. Um, um, and we also need to consider that vitamin D is very prevalent in certain food groups that we might consume that the U.S. don't consume. But it takes. Um, yeah, it definitely takes some some consideration for sure. And it can quickly become clear how, um, you know, it's very possible when um, this research paper suggested the recommended daily allowance, uh, recommended daily intake, um, and, and also, you know, how important sunshine is. And if you are an individual who doesn't get much sunshine because you are working in an office all day, then this one goes out to you guys. If you are one of those people who works outside all day because you're a builder, you're a bricklayer, whatever it might be, um, you take regular walks and get a lot of daylight and sun exposure, then you might not be as deficient or might not be deficient as or at all than some individuals. If you have plenty of oily fish, plenty of eggs, plenty of spinach and plenty of mushrooms, for example, which are all some foods off the top of my head, which... Um, have a lot of vitamin D in them, then this might not be as relevant to you also. But, um, yeah, to put it into perspective, um, when I had my bloods done a few years ago, I would argue that my my diet was very, very good, and it included a lot of those different food groups that I've just explained. Um, however... When I had my bloods done, it still said that my vitamin D levels were insufficient. They were lower than what is ideal. Now, vitamin D is responsible for many different benefits for health and also performance. And sometimes these are directly related. Now, I had actually for this um, supplement, I had made some notes on uh, a list of the different benefits Um, And I'd I'd actually written some quite um, in-depth reasons why you should take and the relevance to different things. However, I'm very mindful that this this podcast is running over the hour now. So I'm going to summarize this the best I can. Um, Why should you take vitamin D? Well, it has very um, prevalent benefits for bone health. And it's it's essential for strong bones. It helps you regulate bone growth and density and remodeling, um, and and definitely um, kind of uh, helps against injury. There was a trial um, with on females, um, and they gave them eight hundred um, international units a day. Of vitamin D supplementation for eight weeks and they showed um, I think it was 20% improvement and lower incidence of stretch fra- stress fractures than um, the placebo group um, and obviously 20% is a big chunk over eight weeks for sure. Um, it also has many different benefits to muscle function and it is thought that vitamin d can improve muscle function via pathways inside the cells as well as increasing the efficiency and number of calcium binding sites involved in muscle muscle contractions Um, there was a study in 2013 um, which um, they tested a large kind of Uh, population of athletes during the winter months Um, only 1.6 of the athletes were found to have optimum vitamin d levels and this was a study in the uk actually Um, then they split them into two groups and gave one group a placebo and the other a vitamin d supplement and again after only eight weeks they found significant improvements in 10 meter sprint performance as well as vertical jump height for the athletes who received the supplement compared to the placebo group. And that was to do with, again, intracellular muscle um, performance, essentially. Um, But again, muscle repair and remodeling um, has profound benefits. Cardiac function, profound benefits. Um, Vitamin D deficiency was shown to negatively affect heart function about 30 years ago. Um, and most research in the area has been done on, on general population, um, but to my knowledge, I, th- I did find one study um, who has looked into the effects of hearts of healthy athletes uh, or so so-called healthy athletes, and what they found is is quite shocking. I find which um, is that athletes who were who were classed as severely vitamin D deficient of these groups. Um, had significantly similar, sorry, it's not similar, uh, significantly smaller hearts than the athletes who were classed as, as being only slightly deficient or with normal ranges, um, and that I mean you know uh, essentially people who were vitamin D deficient had compromised hearts, um, which the the study the study came out with um there's been some questions over the validity of that study so take it with a pinch of salt um but uh, but yeah it's quite quite alarming um also has a prevalent um relationship between on immune function as well so vitamin d is very important for a strong immune system and helps to defend the body against acute illness um and the common cold um And yeah, I mean, you know, runners or cyclists and endurance athletes in general are significantly prone to, to upper respiratory tract infections. Um, and, and, and research has found that athletes with higher vitamin D levels, um, tend to report fewer infections during the winter months. And this is why I kind of generally recommend it for most of my athletes, um, include myself. Um, Uh, if we link that back to my own practices personally i supplement with vitamin d through all of the winter months basically when i get less sun exposure and then i tend not to supplement it much in summer uh, because i do get out in the sunlight a lot um but yeah i do get a blood check typically once a year and i do get that blood check um in summer or, or like spring summer my levels of vitamin d are now absolutely fine um but yeah so i t- tend to supplement in winter and then not supplement in summer in terms of what i take i actually just get my tablets from ebay there's a um a uh, well a decent brand on ebay that i found and i take a thousand uh, international units which tends to be enough for me to maintain my level my levels um but uh yeah again you need to micromanage this based on your requirements your diet and it's not just a case of listening to this podcast and thinking right i need to take a thousand units and and do what tom does because that's not necessarily the case um i would recommend ideally consulting your doctor and i know that consulting your doctor is not the easiest thing to do nowadays but ideally you need to get a blood check and make sure that see what your vitamin d, d levels are at that's an ideal scenario before you just go and decide to supplement but on the basis that most people are deficient and are also on the basis that you can't really take too much of vitamin d um within with certain exceptions obviously but you even if you weren't deficient in vitamin d and you took a certain supplement which isn't too extreme it's not like you would suddenly become um uh, you know, you would suddenly turn yellow. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> there isn't any major side effects to taking too much vitamin D, um, like I say, with with exception. So if you are not deficient in vitamin D and you take something like 800 international units of vitamin D supplementation or any, you know, uh, supermarket supplement, you can't have too much of it. You would just excrete anything out that you don't need. Um there's also lots of evidence to support um inflammation um and and low levels of vitamin D have been shown to be associated with increased inflammatory 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 markers in endurance athletes. Um and uh and yeah, there's been some research um on the relationship between vitamin D levels and anemia or iron deficiency um so yeah you i would recommend taking vitamin d as a summary um vitamin d deficiency can have an influence on athletic performance and injury and and yeah definitely if you work indoors um and you avoid the sun for most of the the day um then you are very likely to have suboptimal levels because vitamin d essentially um is more prevalent in individuals who not only have a good diet which is rich in vitamin d consuming things like eggs consuming things like spinach consuming things like oily fish consuming things like mushrooms um but also you need optimal levels of sun exposure you need both of them um so yeah i mean um yeah you need to you need to consider that um we're going to round the podcast up there. Thank you very much for listening. Um, I appreciate this one's a little, been a little bit longer, but there was a few. I didn't just want to kind of reel those five off in with limited um, information. I wanted to give you the basics so that you can use that information to 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 kind of decide if you need to take it or not. Um, like I said at the start, of this podcast those supplements may or may not benefit your performance but generally based on most of the research those supplements would be a benefit for for the majority of population not only from a health perspective but also from a um a, a performance perspective as well um, and like i say all of the supplements that i told you about today are, are more with regards to taking long term it's like okay well every single one of those supplements should be taken on a daily basis um or intertwining into your normal diet as opposed to just like a pre-workout supplement which you will only take you know pre-hard training session or race which um i'll probably do a podcast on on those at some point as well um but for now thank you very much for listening and see you again next time